Now, as we started the book of Hebrews, as I decided this is what we were going to do and I started prepping for it, I knew very well going in that we were going to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. This is just what the book of Hebrews is like. The writer relies on the stories and images and prophets of the Old Testament to talk about Jesus and who he is, to talk about our lives with Jesus and what that looks like. I was fully prepared for that, and we've done a lot of that. One of the things that sort of took me by surprise, maybe I just wasn't thinking about it when we got started, was how often the writer of Hebrews presses his readers into a mature and enduring faith in Christ. He keeps pressing us further into relationship with God. He urges the followers of Jesus in this way. He uses this kind of language to hold fast to the things that we believe, to not neglect or ignore our faith. He's going to say later on, do not neglect the gathering together as believers as some people do, to not let go of the things that we believed. The writer of Hebrews, and I am as well convinced, and hopefully we're growing convinced, that it is the Christian faith that saves us, nothing else. It's the Christian faith that saves us. It is the Christian faith that draws us into relationship with Jesus Christ, with the God who loves us, with the God who created us. It is the Christian faith that properly orders our lives. And so the writer is deeply worried that Christians are going to be tempted to let go of that. For one reason or another, overt persecution, just flat-out neglect, He's worried that we're going to let go of all of this. It's important to recognize, especially in the kinds of passages we're going to deal with the next two weeks, that he's trying to make the argument, and we need to understand that it is the Christian faith that both saves us and satisfies us. Saves us in relationship with God now and for eternity and fulfills every longing and need of the human heart like nothing else can. It saves us and it satisfies us. So to let go of that truth is to let go of the goodness that God gives us. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, that concern becomes so important to the writer of Hebrews that it actually bubbles right up to the surface. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time talking about our need to mature in the Christian faith. Now, he has been spending time on these topics of the Old Testament priesthood and how that foreshadows Jesus Christ. But he's going to tell us before we can continue to talk about that, we need to talk about the condition of our faith, the condition, the place of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's some of the things that we're going to deal with this morning and moving into next week as well into our next passage. First of all, that there are basic truths to the Christian faith that we need to learn and get to know as we come to know Jesus Christ. These are the fundamentals of the faith, the kinds of things that the church has agreed upon and taught for 2,000 years now. If you were with us in our We Believe series, it's those kinds of things that we spent time on that we need to make sure that as a church we are hanging on to all of the time. It is Jesus who saves us, but it is important that we find right belief in him so that we can know him, so that we can endure in our faith with him, these basics of the Christian faith that we can't let go of. And then the writer is going to lay this in our laps this morning. Believers just have a responsibility to grow in the faith. 
We just have this responsibility to become more and more like Christ and draw close to him. Now, when he does this, and as we talk about this this morning, this is not a call for all of us to attend seminary and read Thomas Aquinas in the original Latin, okay? Now, if you want to do that, do it. I'm telling you, do it. I don't read Latin, but read Thomas Aquinas. But the Christian faith is not for the sloth. It's not for the lazy. It's for people who love Christ, who love God, and want to get to know Him. So the writer of Hebrews is going to lay on you and me a responsibility to actually mature in our faith. Then he's going to tell us this. The believers can actually learn to live in such a way that they can develop an innate sense of the will of God, of the difference, as he puts it, between good and evil. We can, as he puts it, by constant practice, learn the wisdom and the ways of God. So did you know, right? We need to hang on to this question. We need to leave it in our minds as we walk through this passage this morning. Did we know that we can live in such a way that we can understand the ways and the will of God more and more? Let's read what the writer has to say, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. He says this, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What a passage of Scripture. Every now and then, the writer of Hebrews in three or four verses just lays it on us. And it's important for us to slow down and spend some time with it and work on it and think it through and learn how to put it into practice. About these things, I have much to say, but I can't because this is now the condition that we're faced with. The steps in this passage of Scripture are this. So here's how he walks through these steps in this passage of Scripture, and it's what we're going to pay attention to this morning. First of all, he says this, I want to keep on talking about these things, but they're hard to understand because you may not be able to understand them, okay? I want to talk about them, but it's going to be difficult because we may not be ready to understand what needs to be said. The next thing he says is this, it's probably your fault. Now, who likes to hear that when the pastor stands up here and says, you know what, it's probably your fault. Now, remember, I read this too, and I absorb this as well, and I have to realize it's probably my fault too. But that's the next step, it's probably your fault. He says, then you should be ready to teach the basic principles of Scripture, but you still need someone to teach them to you instead. You're still learning when you should be teaching at least the basic things of the faith. And then he finishes with this. We can practice and we can all learn the things of God. And he uses fascinating language at the end of this passage of Scripture this morning. So let's walk through some of those thoughts. First of all, the author says, I want to continue to talk about these things, but I can't get there yet. 
Now, the author is going to come back to this. In about another chapter and a half or so, he's going to come right back to where he left off in our last passage of Scripture, and he's going to talk about those things. But before he does, he needs to lay this out to make sure that you and I are being pressed forward in our understanding of Jesus Christ. He's been talking about priests and the Old Testament priesthood, and then he throws out this guy by the name of Melchizedek as if we just kind of know the story of Melchizedek. And he's going to get to these things. And he says, in fact, there's a lot to say about this. And keep this in mind. All of these stories about the high priest and the priesthood and the sacrificial system and Melchizedek, it's not just so that he can exercise his knowledge of the Old Testament and impress the reader. It's so that he can say all of that is about Jesus. I want to tell you these stories so that you, dear reader, can get to know and love Jesus more and more, so that you can learn to know what it's like to follow Jesus and live like Jesus more and more. That's why he does this. That's why he stops several times in this book to say, don't let go of these things, because these things, as we understand them, We're going to teach us more and more about Jesus Christ. Here's how this strikes me. As someone who's been doing this job for a little while now and lives in the same culture, Christian culture, American culture that pretty much most of us live in, I I want to encourage us to think in these terms. Let's not neglect and let's not, and I use this word on purpose, let's not belittle biblical teaching that might sometimes feel like it's a little bit over my head. Let's not neglect it and let's not belittle it. It is, I'm not going to say very common, but it's unfortunately common in the American church to not just neglect careful biblical teaching, but to belittle careful biblical teaching. When this happens, when the Word of God is opened up and talked about, be it from behind the pulpit or even in worship or inside of our small groups or inside of our own personal study, when this happens with the right intent and with the right spirit and with the right work, it may actually be the only way that we grow in our knowledge of Jesus or at the very least, grow in our desire to know Him more. Does that make sense? Now, all of us have had this kind of experience. Maybe it was a teacher we really liked, a professor we really liked, someone that we watch on YouTube or we watch videos or a book by someone that we really enjoy. We listen to them, we read them, and it's a subject that we like but we don't know that much about. But because the author or the speaker is so passionate and is so good at communicating, we listen to them and we think to ourselves, I want to know more. That's the way that biblical teaching should strike us. And I'm not telling you that's what I give you, but that's how it should strike the listener. I want to know more. There's something else here that I want to dig into and I want to pursue my relationship with Jesus Christ. This about my life needs to change. This about the way that I do things needs needs to alter. I see something new about God that I didn't think I've ever seen before. We're drawn into the things of God because of good, solid biblical teaching like the writer of Hebrews is giving us. As I was going through this, I was reminded of a story. 
<clears throat> something that happened to me inside of this building. Now, we mentioned it's, it's uh, 11 years ago on this day that we merged the two churches, in part because about 10 years ago, uh, we were going through, nine, 10 years ago, we were going through the Gospel of John. And I came upon this passage in the middle of John chapter 5. And you can go back and you can read the middle of John chapter 5. And this was my section that I was going to preach on. And as I went through it, I knew ahead of time that the way that this is communicated, it's, it's difficult, it's a little bit hard to put across. I'm going to have to be very careful to talk about um, what Jesus is telling us in John chapter 5. And the basic story of John chapter 5 was that the Father in heaven has given all authority to his son Jesus Christ and has shown unique love to Jesus so that you and I who are dead in our sins can only find life through the love of Jesus Christ that's been given to him by the Father. That's the basic story of John chapter 5. So I did my darndest. I preached that sermon and on my way out that door, an angry individual caught me, stopped me at the door jam, wouldn't let me through, made sure that everybody around us heard what he had to say, and he began to berate me. He said nobody understood that sermon. That was way over everybody's head. He called it a seminary sermon. He said what you should do every single week is preach a simple salvation message and make sure that people at the, are at the altars. And he told me nobody responded to your message this morning. Now, that's a lovely way to finish a Sunday morning. I was not, okay, I was not in the mood to put up with it at that moment. At that door, I turn around, and we were doing then what we do now. At the end of service, we continue to worship so that people can linger and pray and listen to what the Spirit has to say to the church, and almost everybody was still inside of their church with their hands raised worshiping God. And I said, look around you. They may not be physically at the altars, but people are here worshiping God and every now and then a pastor gets to do this. I said, and you are not. Anyway, he was angry, and he left the church in anger, never to be seen again. Well, that kind of conversation sort of rolls around in your head a little bit. You know, you can't get that pebble out of your shoe all that quickly. A little bit later that same morning, I ran into a friend. I pulled him aside. I sat him down. I didn't tell him the conversation that I had just had. I just asked him a question. I said, could you give me your perception of the sermon this morning? Did it make sense? Did, 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 did it strike you? Can you kind of understand what the, what, what the text meant? And that, that, you know, poor friend in that moment, he sits down and, and he gives me this, this really thoughtful back and forth. He says, yes, this was good. And here's maybe some constructive things you could do to make it clear in the future. And I received all of that. And then he says, and by the way, my six-year-old son didn't want to go to kids' church this morning. So we told him, if you want to stay in church today, you're going to have to draw what you hear Pastor Phil saying. And so he showed me this drawing. A six-year-old got it. The Heavenly Father showers authority and love upon the Son. And you'll notice here at the bottom of the picture, we're dead. <laughs> We've got X's in our eyes and our heart is crossed out. And we receive the love of the Father from the Son. And apparently we quack after that or something like that. He got it. What we put into 
paying attention to the Word of God is what we're going to get out of it. We don't have to be 58 with a, with a Bible degree. We need to be someone who's attentive to what's being said as the Word of God is read, and as the Word of God is listened to. Isn't that beautiful? Let's not neglect it, because God is going to speak in powerful ways, even if sometimes it feels like a stretch. So the author says, about these things, we want to keep telling you more, but I can't because you have become dull of hearing. And by this time, you ought to be teaching the basic principles of God. Sorry. You should be able to teach the basic principles of God, but now we need to keep on teaching those things to you again. And so what happens here is that the author places the responsibility upon the believer to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I can tell you that we as a staff at the church and leaders and volunteers, we work very hard to create that kind of atmosphere, to facilitate that kind of atmosphere so that while we are here, we have an opportunity to engage with the Word of God and with worship and with the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? We work to facilitate that. But I can tell you this as well, that even though a church can facilitate that and can encourage that kind of growth, I can't grow for you. The staff cannot grow for you. Your favorite teacher here at church can't grow for you. We can do everything we can to put it on the table. The writer of Hebrews says, but you're going to have to take it up and eat it. You're going to have to work on that relationship with God. It's really not that different from trying to raise children at home or placing food on the table for them to eat, right? It's it's, it's balancing things in their lives. It's having conversations. It's trying to create an atmosphere in which they can mature and grow. But if that child, for instance, doesn't eat the food that you place in front of them and you decide, I'm not gonna let this go to waste and you eat it for them, they won't grow, right? You're not gonna grow for them. They have to do it. So it is spiritually with us. And we know this as well, that even as children grow physically, they still sometimes fail to grow intellectually or spiritually or morally. And the Hebrews, as far as the writer is concerned, believes that they should have progressed to a certain point at least. But their behavior has caused them to see them as dull of hearing. And this is an image that Scripture uses a lot to talk about our interaction with the things of God, that we might be dull of hearing. Now, just as if you put your hands over your ears and you can't physically hear the things around you, so we can put our hands over our hearts and minds and fail to receive and understand and work at comprehending the things of God. And that's what the word means when it says we have become dull of hearing. You may physically hear it all, but... Are we absorbing it, comprehending it, working it, understanding it? In fact, there's this one moment in uh, the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus has told a couple of parables. And uh, Jesus finishes off the parables by saying this in Mark 4, verses 23 and 24. He says this, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. I've just said all of this. Now, all of you physically heard it. But if you have spiritual ears, let's work on comprehension. Notice what he says then again. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. 
With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. What that last phrase means is this. With the effort that you put into hearing this, that's the kind of measure that you're gonna get back in understanding it. And in fact, if you spend time with the word of God, you know that this is true. You put effort into relationship with God and the spirit of God pours even more back into you. The measure you use is gonna be given back to you and even more. We heard it this morning through the tongue and interpretation that God is pursuing us. He's present. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. He says throughout Scripture, if my people seek me with all their heart, they will find me. You put work into it and it will be returned by the presence and the Spirit of God. So the question lays before us as we read a passage of Scripture like this. If I've been the follower of Jesus Christ for a while, do I think I'm able to talk to someone else about who Jesus is and about what he has done, even if it's just the basics? And as he says here, right, what we pass along to others, it doesn't have to always be complicated, but it should at least be about the basics of my trust in Jesus how my sin has broken my life, how the love of God has been poured out upon me, who Jesus is, his life, death, and resurrection, how it is that I am saved by him and that he is coming back. Exercise that vocabulary. Exercise those conversations with people you know to just simply talk about the basics of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. She says, I want to keep on talking about these things, but we need, to, we need to pause because you've become dull of hearing. Then he says this at the end of verse 12, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. You need milk and not solid food. The writer of Hebrews is not the only person in Scripture to use this image with Christians. It happens with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, you know, I, I, I've come to you, and I have to keep coming back to you with milk. I want to give you other things. You need to progress in your faith so that we can keep talking about more and more of Jesus. So the image is quite clear. It's an encouragement for growth in our walk with Jesus. And the image is about as clear as it could possibly be. It is inappropriate to put a steak dinner in front of an infant. They're literally incapable of eating it. I mean, forget enjoying it. (laughs) Just not even being able to eat it at all. But an infant will thrive on a certain kind of simple but nutritious diet. And at that stage in life, what does that infant need? That infant needs that kind of nutritious diet. But if a 17-year-old is still living on a diet of pureed peas and bananas, something's wrong, right? The physical diet has changed. The writers of Scripture want us to know the spiritual diet has to change as well. We remind ourselves of the gospel story over and over again. We have to remind ourselves of those things. But there's progress to be made. There's a relationship to engage in and to know Jesus more and more. So at some point, the child just needs solid food. It becomes detrimental 
for us to remain on that infant's diet. So the believer needs meat. I'm also told that some people enjoy things like broccoli and cauliflower. But we need more than just the milk. We need to grow. We need to be matured in our faith with Jesus Christ. And I'm worried. I'm worried with the writer of Hebrews sometimes. Do Christians, especially Christians inside of our culture, do we sometimes put ourselves into a spiritual rut, listening to and reading only the spiritual equivalent of pureed peas and bananas over and over and over? Do we only eat theological Twinkies? Is that all we want to take in? It tastes good. It sounds good. It feels good. It's what we want to hear, and so we listen to it over and over. And at some point, guys, that kind of teaching, if it doesn't move on, if it doesn't speak to the broader counsel of the Word of God, not only is it simple, at some point, and this is Pastor Phil speaking, at some point it becomes false teaching because now we're not talking about everything else that God is as well. And it will not satisfy the human longings because it will not touch on actual human experience and how God can speak into those things. Do we sometimes find ourselves in those ruts? Have we allowed ourselves to be challenged or convicted or pressed forward? Have we ourselves dug into the Word of God in ways that stretch us? Okay, that move us, that cause us to ask questions, that cause us to hunt down answers, that causes us to spend maybe even more time in prayer with God and not less. All of these things are in the process of you and me growing in faith as the writer of Hebrews wants us to. In fact, he tells us that there are dangers for remaining a spiritual infant. He says these spiritual infants they are unskilled in the word of righteousness, he says in verse 13. The New Living Translation takes that and, and clarifies it for us. This person is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Now, this is interesting. People who have some semblance of the Christian faith, a version of love for God, maybe an experience with Jesus Christ that was absolutely genuine, but they don't know how to live it. They've never moved to the point where their lives now reflect the things that they believe about Jesus. A lot of what I've been reading lately has dealt with a lot of research and polling data of American Christians in the last three or four years, um, specifically regarding uh, the elections of 2016 and 2018. So there's a lot of information there, but to me, one of the most interesting things that I keep reading over and over again, that in the polling and research data over those two election cycles, the individuals who are most likely to say that their Christian faith is very important to them are the same people who are least likely to attend church. Now, now get that for a second. Let that sit for a second. The people who are most likely to say my Christian faith is very important to me are also the same people who are least likely to go to the place where they learn what their faith is like, to learn how to live their faith, to learn how to exercise their faith. 
And we have this dichotomy that, that's revealed in that, that's revealed in a text like this, that's revealed in our experience of people who have some level of understanding and belief that, that God is good and I have a relationship with Jesus and people ought to be nice, but their lives have never developed. Their behavior has never followed their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, here's how part of this strikes me. How many high-profile Christian leaders are completely unable to label sinful behavior in the public square? And I say this because it bugs me. And here's how this happens. I might feel a little bit like a curmudgeon this morning. That's okay. I just get to be a curmudgeon every now and then. Some individuals are invited to be on national shows because they just are. There's no other phrase for it. They're just Christian celebrities for one reason or another. So they're invited onto national shows. And then those individuals are expected to talk about some of the most complicated issues that our culture faces, and they sometimes give the most watered-down and wishy-washy answers. They fail in their public witness. This just happens. We have people who have a certain kind of understanding of Jesus, but when push comes to shove, they're not experienced in the word of righteousness. They don't know how to do what's right in that moment. Now, would Pastor Phil do what's right in that moment? I don't know. Because how many of us, average Christians, not known by more than 37 people, make exactly the same mistake when only 15 people will ever read our social media post, right? God has given us the church God has given the church gifts. God has given the church the word of God so that we have this atmosphere where we learn to grow in the things of Christ. The book of Ephesians, when Paul writes this book, he says this in Ephesians 4. He talked about all the gifts. He's just talked about all the gifts that God gives the church, and here's why. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Instead of all of that, instead of drifting away or falling away from the things that we believe, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I love that formula, if you will, speaking the truth in love. We can't let go of either one of those. And here's where we tend to make the mistake often, is that it's hard to speak the truth, but it's easy to speak in loving terms. So we put the truth in the back seat, and we speak in loving terms, and sometimes we just don't talk much about the truth. And I get that because it's easy to do that. But you see, the church exists and the, 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 the fellowship of believers exists so that we can learn how to speak the truth in love. And in doing that, we actually mature into people who look more and more like Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. So if we remain untrained, which is some of the language he uses, untrained in the things of God, we may not learn how to act with the truth and with the goodness of God when it needs to be done. Here's a very generalized way of, of thinking about this. An infant does not know that it's wrong to lie. Just 
literally doesn't know that it's wrong to lie. A child will lie, but is learning that it's wrong to lie. An adult needs to learn to hate lying. Does that make sense? At one point, we just don't know, and so we have to learn. And as we're learning, there's some back and forth, and there's some, I didn't do it right, right? We do it, but we're learning that it's wrong. But there comes a point when not only have we learned not to do it, but something inside of us has learned to hate it because it's evil, to hate it because it does wrong to our neighbor and to God as well. Some of you may know the old joke, the, the Sunday school teacher who gets done with her morning and she's, she's taught a lesson on lying to the little kids. So at the end of the lesson, she, she asks the kids, so tell me, what is a lie? A little girl raises her hand and she says, a lie is a sin and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. If we remain immature, he says we're unskilled in the word of righteousness. But he finishes his little section of verse 14 by saying this, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their, and I, again, I just love this language, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When we consciously practice the way of Jesus, day in and day out, Scripture tells us that we can learn to tell the difference between what is good and evil. We can learn to tell the difference between the way of God and the things of life that are not the way of God. Have you ever wondered how two individuals can look at exactly the same thing and have exactly the opposite moral reactions to it? Can look at the same act and one individual is drawn to it. Let's say this act is evil and they're actually drawn to it. They can't call it evil. They might actually be pulled into it because something inside of them thinks that this is good. Someone else looks at that same evil act and is repulsed by it, recognizes it as evil, sees it for the harm that it does and is actually motivated to have the opposite reaction. I dislike this. I hate this so much that we have to do something about it. How can two people look at the same thing and have the opposite moral reactions? Well, the church has talked about this for 2,000 years. And here's the nutshell answer to that question, and it is this. Some people are cultivating a life of loving sin, loving sin. They're cultivating a life of loving sin. Well, another individual is cultivating a life of loving the goodness of God. And the more we love the things of God, the clearer we begin to see what is evil and the destruction that it does. And it will actually motivate us to pray about that, to work on it, to deal with it, to maybe even become activists on the side of good and justice because we're moved by it. But if individuals have developed a habit in which they've learned to love what is evil, they will see something that is destructive and evil and they will call it good. It's a fascinating reality. But the prophets tell us this. Isaiah says there will come a point in time and culture where people call good evil and evil good. And there it is. It happens all the time. There's this old saying some of you may know. A man makes the habits and the habits make the man. 
The habits that we build into our lives have this rebound effect. And whatever those habits are, then start affecting our moral character as well. If someone is in the habit of gossiping, there's going to come a point in time where they're not just a person who gossips, they are a gossip. Does that make sense? It becomes part of their character. If an individual gets caught inside of the cycle of watching pornography, that is going to affect their soul. It comes back. And there's an entire category of Scripture that talks about how this works and talks about how to find the way of God. It's just called wisdom literature. Read the book of Proverbs, so much of the book of Psalms, even the book of Job, and then this curious little book called the book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom literature, not intelligence literature, wisdom literature. Listen to how the book of Ecclesiastes talks about this dynamic in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the wise person has eyes in his head. The fool walks in darkness and then we all die. That's just what it's like reading the book of Ecclesiastes, right? We all die, but the wise person has eyes in their head. The fool walks in darkness. You see, foolishness is like walking through the woods in the pitch black of night. The fool will stumble. The fool will hit trees and trunks when they don't even know what they're stumbling over. Wisdom is like turning on the light and being able to see everything, including the path, and learning how to walk the path. One of my favorite passages in the book of Proverbs comes from Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19, and it uses this exact image. And it says this, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. If you can imagine night disappearing and the light turning on over all of creation, so to speak. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't even know over what they stumble. The world needs and the church needs Christians who both know the difference between good and evil and learn how to live the difference between good and evil. In our private lives, when it's only us and God, and in our public lives with everyone else, to know that difference and to learn how to live that difference. Now, you and I know, and this is part of what aggravates us inside of our culture so often, those lines of what are good and evil, they are so often blurred in so many ways. And so it just takes time and work to be able to tell the difference. Sometimes it will be obvious and clear. Sometimes it won't be. You see, what the text says is by constant practice, we're going to have that power of discernment trained so that then we can know the difference between good and evil. Life is complicated. It really is. So it takes wisdom. It takes endurance. It takes faithfulness over time to grow in this wisdom of God and to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And so Christians learn how to practice the habits of their faith, habits which bring them closer and closer to Christ, habits which teach us to think more like he does, to have the emotional status and reaction that Jesus might have, to live as if, right, we're more and more like Jesus Christ. 
And so here are some things to do. And if you're looking at something, for deep, something deep and complicated, this might be a little disappointing. But this is powerful stuff, I believe. Christians practice habits that bring them closer to Christ. And here's what we do. We read, we pray, and we gather for worship. We read and we pray and we gather for worship. There are other disciplines of the faith. In fact, some of it was spoken to us this morning. The disciplines of silence and solitude, of letting go of all of those distractions and paying attention to the presence of God. Can we pray like that for more than 30 seconds at a pop? We read the Word of God. If you're not in the habit of reading the Word of God, pick it up. Begin the habit of reading the Word of God and learn how to pray more and more. And it can be very simple to begin with, but the more we pray, the more we develop that relationship, the more we want to pray and spend time in the presence of God. And then we gather for worship to remind us over and over again how important and beautiful this can possibly be. And let me encourage you about something because if you, if you engage in this, if maybe you're restarting a, a practice like this, okay, you're right, Pastor Phil, I need to read, I need to pray more often, I guarantee you one of the first things that's gonna happen is you're gonna become bored out of your skull. Endure. Do it anyway. Keep moving. Remember, the measure that you give to this, Jesus says, is the measure that will be returned to you and even more. We read the Word of God. We read it individually together. We pray individually together, and we gather together to worship, right? We practice these habits. Christians have been practicing these habits for 2,000 years. And guys, this is the kind of training, the language that Hebrews uses, this is the kind of training that leads us into the life of Jesus Christ that's been made available to us. So let's think about this as we close. We do these kinds of things for the sake of our own lives so that we can take advantage of what is given to us by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We should remind ourselves often of the kinds of things that Jesus says in John 10.10. Now the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have a really mediocre, boring life, that they might have life abundantly. So we do these things for ourselves so that we can enter the life that God has for us. We do these things for our eternity with Jesus as well. Think about it like this. If right now in this moment I were brought into the presence of the perfect holiness and glory of God, Scripture says I would die. I'm not ready for it. I'm full of sin. I'm an imperfect creature. But God is preparing his children to become the kinds of creatures who can stand in his glory for all of eternity, who can revel in the glory of God for all of eternity. This is incredible stuff that God is doing in the lives of his children if we will eat the solid food, right? And then we do this, friends, so that we can pass along this kind of faith, to show new believers, to show the next generation what it means to endure and be faithful and to follow Christ in every season of life. It reminded me of some of the last things that the Apostle Paul writes from prison, not long before he dies. It comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he says this to a young pastor, he says this to us, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is the last drop, Timothy. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May this be where we end up when we are close to that moment when we will see Jesus. Let's pray.